Hey guys, it's Kaylee and Cecilia bringing you the STEM at St. Mike's podcast. We are going to be your hosts, and each week we'll be bringing you current science topics and exploring STEM opportunities right here at St. Mike's. Hi everyone, welcome back to STEM at St. Mike's. Cecilia here. This week we had an amazing opportunity to meet with students from Professor Fabian Vine's senior seminar. And this semester, the seniors were studying the effects of venoms, toxins, and poisons on humans. And so they are here today to tell us a little bit more about these effects that people should be aware of. We're here with our first group who is going to be discussing toxic plants with us today and they're going to introduce themselves really quick. Hi, my name is Rachel Smith. I'm a double major in pre-pharmacy and biology with minors in chemistry and psychology. Hi, my name is Rosslyn Goodwin and I'm a biology major with a chemistry minor. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm a health science major. Hi everyone, my name is Andrew DeCristoforo. I'm a health science major and a business minor. Great, so let's jump right in. Could you guys maybe tell us a little bit about some common plants and fungi that are poisonous that the general public may not know about? So the first plant that we looked at was called the foxglove, and it is seen in Vermont due to the fact that it can survive uh, very harsh cold temperatures can survive a temperature range of anywhere from negative 13 degrees to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a biennial plant that is lined on each side of the stem with beautiful pink bell-shaped flowers. And in its first year, it will commonly be seen as a small basal clump. And then in its second year, it's going to rapidly grow and spike to be anywhere from two to five feet tall. And commonly, we're going to see it in woods, pastures, and gardens. And all parts of the plants are going to be toxic and consuming any part of the plant can cause severe heart arrhythmias due to the cardiac glycosides. Very interesting. So the lily of the valley is another common garden plant like the foxglove, but in this case it has very small white bells and an extremely sweet fragrance. However, despite its appeal in both appearance and scent, the lily of the valley is extremely toxic. It is typically accidentally ingested by small children or pets and can be found easily in your backyard, garden, and local forest in Vermont. The toxin found through the entire plant is called convelatoxin and has been shown to also induce heart failure. Additionally, it wasn't until recently that a 2017 study performed by the University of Santa Catarina discovered that the convelatoxin can have cytotoxic effects on the liver, meaning it can kill liver cells. Elderberries are another poisonous plant that's common in Vermont. One thing you might not know is that the leaves, twigs, the seeds, and the roots all contain cyanide. The plants are listed as invasive species in some countries. That's because their shallow, aggressive root system can displace a lot of native vegetation. The fruits are poisonous to humans, but they pose a large threat to domestic dogs and animals as well. That's because fruit looks like something that would be safe to consume and that's what makes the tree so dangerous. I actually wanted to discuss a little bit about mushrooms. There are two kinds of mushrooms found in Vermont that are incredibly dangerous. The death cap mushroom and the destroying angel are similar in size, looks, and share similar effects on your body. They are both plain white mushrooms with a yellow hue to them and a sticky, fruity body. I want to bring attention to these mushrooms because if they are consumed, it can be fatal. The mushrooms have a toxin called alpha-aminotin that binds to the cell's RNA polymerase, preventing cell replication and leading to cell death. This eventually can lead to liver failure. 
very interesting. Yeah, I knew about all of those plants, but I didn't realize that most of them were that dangerous. So thank you for talking about that. The next question I had for you was how someone should go about handling or caring for a toxic plant if they find one around where they live. So if someone encounters the foxglove in and around their home, going to be typically most dangerous between the months of June and August when the flowering spike occurs. All parts of the plants are going to be poisonous, including the pollen. So when handling this plant, it's very important to wear gloves and refrain from bringing it into your home, as it was shown that 0.5 grams of dried leaves or 2 grams of fresh leaves can kill a healthy adult. And recently in 2016, in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, there was a report on a case of accidental ingestion of the foxglove plant in the form of an herbal tea. So that goes to show the importance of not bringing the plant inside your home. So luckily the lily of the valley is only toxic when accidentally ingested. So if you have any small children or pets in your home, do not put the plant in a vase where it can be easily accessible. In terms of the garden, lily of the valley can spread quickly and can choke out other plants. So keeping it in a raised flower bed or other variation can both help keep your garden intact and prevent your children or pets from getting into them. When it comes to elderberries, these are berries that grow off of trees that can be 10 to 15 feet tall. So the proper way to handle the berries, according to Thomas A.L. and colleagues from 2009, is you can actually cook them to remove the cyanide to neutralize it from the berries. But in order to neutralize the poison from the trees, there's only a couple methods. You could just cut it down regularly, but you risk poisoning if you have any open wounds on your arms. A safer way to do it is to cut a ring of bark around the base of the tree that stops the tree from being able to distribute nutrients. And in order to speed the process up, you can spray the ring with weed killer. That should neutralize the poison in the tree. And then once that's done, you can just remove the tree by normal means. Great, thank you. So I know I'm learning a lot of new stuff and I'm sure our listeners are too. Why do you guys think that there is such limited education on toxic or poisonous plants? With limited education, toxic plant poisonings can be considered a public health problem. This means that knowledge is the best form of prevention. Uh, yeah, a study done in Slovakia actually showed that many children from the ages of 10 to 17 are unable to identify poisonous fruits, both common and uncommon, resulting in many children poisoning themselves. Jana Fankovikova and Pavel Prokov did a study that showed that children aren't taught about toxic plants and mushrooms in classrooms and are therefore more vulnerable to the toxic world around them. This study shows that children should be taught more about these toxic plants as they protect and reduce the number of children who fall ill. Knowing about these toxins provides more knowledge for how to treat them and how to stay away from them. In an additional study in the Journal of Medical Toxicology, Trayvon Thompson reported that in 2013, there were 38,851 unintentional poisoning deaths in the United States. Medical toxicology services are available to nearly all physicians and healthcare facilities in the United States via the poison control system. And more recently, there was an act known as the Global Educational Toxicology Uniting Project, otherwise known as GetUp, and it was provided as an educational program developed to provide global toxicology education to areas with limited resources. And what GetUp is, is it uses multi-user web-based video conferencing to connect healthcare facilities without access to medical toxicologists to those with access to medical toxicologists for the purpose of providing much-needed education on these plants and fungi.
Great. Well, it's awesome to know that there are some initiatives out there to better educate the general public. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking a little bit more about natural toxins, but now we're going to be talking about the effects that toxic chemicals can have on humans and the environment. So we have a few more people joining us today, and they are going to introduce themselves. My name is Tegan Policino, and I'm a biology major. I'm Jude Amitopoulos. I'm also a biology major. I'm Stephanie Ramsey, and I'm a bio major. I am Katie Marullo, and I'm I'm Danielle Miller, and I'm also a biomanager. Awesome, let's jump right in. Could you tell me why so many companies use toxic chemicals in their everyday products? So to make the product do what it needs to do in the most efficient, cost-effective way, you kind of need to use chemicals. A classic example of this is di-2-ethylhexylphalate, or DEHP. This chemical is used to create a more flexible plastic found in objects like milk cartons. And although it has this function, it is found to be somewhat toxic. And when looking at a study involving zebrafish, the zebrafish were exposed to environmentally relevant doses of DHP. And this was a study done by Carnavali and colleagues in 2010. And they found that the zebrafish had a significant decrease in ovulation and embryo production. The study concluded that DHP had major effects in oocyte growth, maturation, and ovulation. And because they have strength and similarities in humans, it makes it relevant when looking at DHP in humans. And the DHP is used to make inefficient plastic, but it's also toxic, which is a great example as to why we are seeing toxins in our everyday products. Okay, very interesting. So how can these toxic chemicals that are being used enter the environment and impact human health? And since they have all these harmful impacts, what are some possible alternatives that can be used today? So a lot of chemical waste ends up in many U.S. waterways. A lot of companies that we know of that make food products actually dump more than 206 million pounds of waste into U.S. waterways. And this tends to affect the Great Lakes, Chesapeake Bay, Mississippi River, and many others that we know of. A lot of companies have also taken advantage of loopholes and gone through court cases in order to continue this practice, and it has resulted in over 117 million Americans now being at risk of having no protection against water pollution and clean drinking water. And there's different laws in each state with a wide range of what is punishable by law, ranging from misdemeanor, felonies only after repeated offenses, and only a handful of them have strict liabilities. Cool, and I just wanted to jump in and say an example of industrial waste entering our waterways, leading to impacts on human health. And this occurred in Flint, Michigan back in 2014 when lead leached into the drinking water. And basically what happened there is the city officials decided to switch the water sources from the Detroit water system to the Flint River. Unfortunately, after the switch was made, it was discovered that the Flint River is 16 times more corrosive than their original water source because of industries dumping 26.5 million gallons of waste into the water each day in the 1960s. And that waste just accumulated in the river. And when the water system got switched, the contaminants reacted with the lead in the pipes that was carrying water to people's homes. And that resulted in lead in the drinking water. And this caused blood lead levels in children to increase significantly. It was actually found that 7% of Flint children had blood lead levels over 5 micrograms per deciliter which is about the maximum amount of blood that's deemed okay, and okay is going to be in quotation marks. And this 
can have really detrimental effects on the health of people and specifically in children as they're still developing. And some of the health effects can include a decrease in attention, effects on visual motor reasoning skills, and can cause social behavior issues and also learning disabilities. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of alternatives to this kind of situation, but an interesting study I found from 2016 by Ahmad is that some water treatment sludge that is filtered out during filtration can be used, instead of dumping them into drains and landfills, which is not safe, they found that 15% of water treatment sludge can be added to produce brick and roof tiles and some ceramic materials at certain amounts and home temperatures, which actually do apply to some city standards in buildings. And in fact, the heavy metals in the water treatment sludge help hold products together. And centering them at high temperatures actually inhibits the heavy metal leachability, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, wow. So given that toxic chemicals are harming humans and the environment, what do scientists think will be the effects that we're going to face in 50 or 100 years from now? Yeah, so as unfortunate as it may sound, there are so many injustices going on in our world regarding the degradation of our planet and just general overall safety as well for monetary benefit. In my research, there were numerous different companies that prioritized business over safety and conservation, and just to name a few, I came across toxic waste dumping in Italy, the dumping of wastewater in Algeria, and then in the realm of governmental actions, in order to save money by removing chemical weapons, I found that chemical agents such as sulfur mustard and lewisite is dumped massively into the ocean. This is not only this not only has an effect on the water we consume and swim in, but we must also acknowledge the unforgiving effects it has on our marine life as well. So not only are we going to see even more of a drastic increase in health effects, reproductive issues, and cancer cases in these areas where the dumping is going on, but we'll also see a detriment to marine life as well in these areas in the next 50 to 100 years. Kind of touch on what Stephanie's point was before we relocated the conversation. Again, limited alternative options in this uh, field, but green chemistry is another good option. It's the process of improving chemicals and the manufacturing processes involved in these chemicals and following a 12-step principle system that can lessen the detrimental effects to the environment, including waste prevention, atom economy, less hazardous synthesis, design of benign chemicals, use of benign solvents and auxiliaries, energy efficiency, use of renewable feedstocks, reduced derivatives, use of catalysis, design for degradation, real-time analysis for pollution prevention, and accident prevention. And all of these things could play a huge role in improving the environment and these companies and processes effect on the environment. Great. Well, it's good to know that there are some alternatives and ways that we can hopefully turn this around for the health of humans and our environment. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. So we've heard about some naturally occurring toxins as well as man-made chemicals, and now we're going to be learning a little bit about microplastics and the effect that they have on the environment. So I will have our next group introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Michael Barnett, and I am a biology major. Hi, I'm Jaden Cruz, and I am a biology major as well. Hi, I'm Samantha Crotty, and I'm a biology major. I am Angela Tracy, and I'm also a biology teacher. Great. So, guys, tell me, how does plastic waste interfere with the quality of life of marine animals? Yeah, thank you, Cecilia. 
Plastic waste can physically interfere with marine animals in two ways, entanglement and by altering their habitat. Entanglement can lead to injury, which can decrease an animal's ability to hunt and increase its odds of predation. According to a study by Gall and Thompson called The Impact of Debris on Marine Life, plastics account for 92% of encounters between animals and debris. Another study by Lee and colleagues titled Plastic Waste in the Marine Environment mentioned that entanglement by plastics was significantly more common than ingestion. The reason this is important is that the study by Gall and Thompson noted how 17% of species affected by entanglement are threatened or near threatened, meaning our plastic waste can directly cause extinction. So also along with the issue of entanglement, we can also see plastics affecting the marine life habitat. So for example, gastropods like snails and slugs have to spend more time searching for food when there's more plastic present where they live. Or another example of this is with marine turtles. So when mother turtles are looking for a place to nest, entanglement becomes an issue here again, especially when they're returning to the ocean after laying their eggs. And once those eggs are laid, the plastic cannot only act as a barrier to the baby turtles returning to the ocean, but it also could trap them actually in the nesting chamber itself. And the sex of the sea turtles also depends on the temperatures that the eggs are incubated in. So eggs incubated at lower temperatures are more likely to be male and vice versa. Research surrounding the effect that plastic has on marine turtle egg incubation found that sediments with plastic form 16% slower than if there was no plastic present. So this not only affects the sex of the turtle hatchlings, but it also can prolong incubation. Wow, okay, that's very interesting. I didn't know that about the turtles. So how does the ingestion of microplastics specifically affect marine ecosystems? Yeah, thanks, Cecilia. So microplastics and nanoplastics are extremely small, so small that they can be ingested by small organisms like plankton. Copepods, for example, are a type of plankton, and they are vital for the marine food chain and also balancing marine ecosystems. When copepods ingest microplastics and another organism ingests the copepods, these microplastics can make their way up to the food chain, which can not only harm the organism internally, but also disrupt the balance of marine ecosystems. One study observed that albatross carcasses on the beaches of Hawaii, Alaska, and Brazil found that 30 to 65% of these albatross carcasses contain microplastics in their system. So that's kind of a broader look at the whole marine ecosystem. Can you tell me a little bit about how the ingestion of microplastics affects individual organisms? Yes, so essentially the ingestion of microplastics will inhibit the growth, development, and also reproduction of these organisms. So ingested microplastics are not digestible, and so they end up blocking the digestive tract, which obviously will cause a lot of issues in an organism. So for example, organisms will feel full, when in reality they are not, and that causes them to have poor nutrition. And then also energy reserves are affected and growth can be stunted because of that. Specifically in muscles, Ingestion of microplastics can cause neurotoxicity, immunotoxicity, and also genotoxicity, which just causes damage to DNA and chromosomes. And then with immunotoxicity specifically, a buildup of microplastics in the gut can lead to inflammation and constant activation of the immune system. And nanoplastics can spread to vital organisms and even cross into the brain. So overall, ingestion of microplastics into organisms definitely harms them, and we are really only beginning to understand like the magnitude of this in marine animals, but also in humans. 
Awesome. I know I have certainly learned many things today, and I hope that our listeners will take some of these messages to heart. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us here at STEM at St. Mike's. Our podcast is available at Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you want to hear more about new content that we're creating, or if you have any questions for us, head on over to our Instagram page, STEM at St. Mike's Podcasts. We appreciate your support. That's all we have for now, and we will see you all next week.